Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. Janelle Potter, according to her friends and family, was always a little strange. People who went to school with her in the Philadelphia suburbs said that despite being somewhat of an outsider, she'd plunk herself down in the middle of any conversation and act like she'd been hanging out with those people all day. Christy, Janelle's older sister, said that Janelle was pampered by their parents, Barbara and Bud, and that while, yes, Janelle had challenges, she wasn't as far gone as the Potter parents thought. Janelle had been placed in special ed beginning in kindergarten. She was born with an auditory processing issues that made following lessons difficult. It also made it hard for her to make friends because she couldn't pick up on inflections or exaggeration. If a classmate jokingly said, my mom's gonna kill me, Janelle would be very concerned for their safety. She also struggled with anxiety and developed diabetes. But Janelle wasn't stupid. She knew how to play her parents and get whatever she wanted from them. In front of them, she was a helpless, innocent child, even at 30 years old. But online, her favorite place to spend time, Janelle swore like a sailor, harassed people, and spread rumors as easily as she breathed. In 2004, Bud, Barbara, and 22-year-old Janelle moved from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, to Mountain City, Tennessee, to be closer to Barbara's aging mother. Christy stayed behind. After she graduated with her associate's degree in 1997, Christy got a graphic design job and moved out of her parents' house immediately. She had always felt like the black sheep and couldn't stand watching her little sister manipulate her parents. Even when Janelle was a teenager, Christy would watch her pretend she couldn't do something, get one of her parents to do it, and as soon as the parent left, Janelle would smirk and do the task easily on her own. It drove Christine batty. Mountain City, Tennessee is a town of 2,500 people, the stereotypical everyone-knows-everyone place. None of the three Potters worked. Janelle, with all of her challenges, collected a disability check, as did her father, Buddy. Buddy was a former Marine, a Vietnam vet, and after returning home from the war, he'd taken a welding job and fallen 75 feet off of a building. The fall itself had disabled him, and by the 2000s, time and advanced age had worsened his condition. Barbara seems to have been able to work, but had a husband and daughter to look after full-time. So the Potters weren't wealthy, but Mountain City wasn't a fancy place, and they did all right. The fact that Janelle was unable to work is a little tragic, because Janelle had grown up idolizing her hero veteran father. She was obsessed with the Marine Corps, and since their mascot is a bulldog, she was obsessed with those too. When it was clear that her health wouldn't let her join the Marines, Janelle focused her interest on law enforcement. She was fascinated by the local police officers, their uniforms, their badges, and their guns. She came by her love for guns from her dad, too. Buddy was always carrying, usually two guns. It was his right as an American, after all. As I said, Janelle loved the internet and spent most of her time in the spare bedroom on the family desktop. Janelle probably could have gotten a job in town at the grocery store or a local shop, but the Potters weren't about to let their daughter come into contact with people who might be rude to her, and Janelle couldn't take off on her own. She'd never gotten her driver's license, so the only way Janelle could get anywhere was if one of her parents drove her. The Potter parents were very choosy about Janelle's friends. Even an invitation from a female friend to take Janelle to the mall involved a multi-day vetting process. And so Janelle went online. She loved Googling pictures of cute dogs and posting selfies of her with one of her many stuffed animals. 
And she especially loves conversation platforms. MySpace, chat rooms, email, instant messaging, Facebook, topics. She would type anything that crossed her mind into one or all of these. If you're not familiar with topics, spelled with an X at the end, it seems to be the same thing as Nextdoor, where you belong to a part of the site designated for your area and can post about anything that's going on. The idea was for people to easily publicize things like yard sales or lost pets. But these days, as well as back in 2012, Topics was used to publicly trash your neighbors. And boy, did Janelle love to trash her neighbors. While Janelle was so overly friendly with people in Mountain City that they found it a little invasive, there were a few select women that she hated with the passion of a thousand burning suns. Their names were Billie Jean, Lindsay, and Tara. Tara and Janelle had actually been friends at one point, but no longer, and perhaps that was what made Janelle hate the trio so much. Billie Jean had moved into town in 2009 and taken a custodial job at the local mill. She was 20 years old, and one of the mill workers, Bill Payne, thought she was very pretty. He constantly found excuses to go talk to her while they were both working. They started dating, and within just a few months, Billie Jean had moved into Bill's house where he lived with his father, also named Bill. I'm sure that wasn't a confusing household at all, the house of Bill, Bill, and Billy. By the fall of 2010, Billie Jean was pregnant. Billie Jean was good for Bill. In his youth, meaning well into his 30s, Bill had been a small-time pills dealer, along with being addicted himself. He also spent many nights at the local bar with his buddies. But Billie Jean wasn't a huge fan of drugs or alcohol, and Bill really cleaned up his act for her. By the time their son Tyler was born on July 11, 2011, he was completely off drugs and drank responsibly. Janelle hated Billie Jean for stealing her friend Tara, but also because, as far as Janelle saw it, Billie Jean had stolen Bill from her. This wasn't true. Janelle and Bill had been introduced by Tracy, Bill's cousin. Janelle really liked Bill, but because Janelle's parents would never let her date, the two never had a chance to really get to know one another. And Bill thought, correctly, that being in a relationship with Janelle would be too much trouble. He called her the shut-in, and Janelle hated that, despite the fact that she and Bill had never actually been in a relationship. And so she took to the internet. In April, Janelle created several different accounts under different names. One of her personas, Matt Potter, wrote, All three of these girls are no-good whores who sell drugs and drink. One of Janelle's other accounts, Kelly, quickly agreed. Right, Matt? They are nasty sluts. And don't Lindsay have HIV is what I heard. She is so ugly and she is mad because Janelle is pretty and sweet and nice. It's so sad, Matt. Then Dan White chimed in. Billie Jean is a whore too. I agree with you both. And this girl Janelle, I do know as in passing, but she is a good girl and was brought up right. You can tell everything is you're welcome and hello and thank you. She is just a sweet girl. Kelly agreed, saying that also, Janelle's name was just a great name. Get used to hearing these kinds of things that Janelle writes about herself. It's almost uniform how her personas label her so pretty and sweet and nice over and over. And anyone who read Janelle's self-description on her Facebook could see the similar wording. In her About Me, Janelle wrote in part, Most everyone knows me in some way or another. I'm a very sweet, caring person. Janelle's online antagonism toward Billie Jean, Lindsay, and Tara was bad enough that Sheriff Mike Reese suggested to Buddy that he limit Janelle's screen time. In response, Buddy said, Sheriff, my daughter stays in the house all the time, and that computer is all she has. Which makes me think that perhaps if the Potters had just let go of Janelle a little bit and let her work part-time or something, none of what is about to happen would have happened. Backing up a bit, in late 2010, Janelle was still creating online personas, but she stayed a little closer to home with the character of Chris. 
In the beginning, Chris solely emailed her mother, Barbara. Chris, Barbara was told by Janelle, was someone Janelle had gone to high school with in Pennsylvania. They had been born in the same hospital on the same day, one minute apart. He, too, was anxious and diabetic. He had stood up for her when a girl named Amanda bullied her, had picked her up before school every day, and drove her home from tennis practice later. All of this obviously was a lie, which makes me wonder what Janelle was really doing before and after school. When Chris wrote to Barbara, he used Janelle's email address, bull2dog at aol.com. Why didn't Chris have his own email address in the year of our Lord 2010? Well, because Chris was in the CIA, of course. Chris also had access to and routinely used Janelle's Facebook account, often to correspond with Barbara. Barbara loved Chris, probably because one, he wrote her long, gossipy emails about the people in town, to which she responded with her own lengthy emails. And two, because Chris loved Janelle. Though their will-they-won't-they relationship in PA didn't work out, Chris was still fond of Janelle, who was, he often noted, pretty and kind and sweet. Everything he wrote to Barbara was about Janelle in some way, because the reason he was in the Potters' lives was to protect Janelle from the town whores on the command of the CIA. Okay, I know you're all thinking that there is no way that Barbara, a mature woman with all of her faculties, could believe this. But she did. While Barbara successfully navigated the world as an adult, she was also extremely credulous. Chris's assertion that he was in the CIA didn't surprise her or even really impress her, because her husband had been in the CIA since they were married. According to Buddy, who left for Vietnam just months after he and Barbara were hitched, the government had approached him while he was serving and asked him to join the CIA. He had informed Barbara that as an agent, he was killing lots of people. For Uncle Sam, of course, not because he wanted to. When he returned to Pennsylvania from the war, he bragged that he had been awarded a medal for his service, but he never got the physical medal because it was a secret mission. The Potters told everyone about this, but it came back to bite them. Buddy ended up being prosecuted for stolen valor while still living in Pennsylvania. But once the family got to Mountain City, they continued telling everyone about Buddy's CIA service, which, according to the Potter women, was still going on. Buddy, a disabled veteran who needed an oxygen tank with him at all times and couldn't turn a computer on, was still a spy for the U.S. government. So, due to Buddy's decades of alleged CIA service, it wasn't hard for Barbara to accept Chris's claims that he, too, was in the service. Chris was Barbara's dream man for Janelle. He was handsome, Janelle had showed her a picture, he had an exciting job, and he loved her daughter. And though Barbara often told Chris he could come over for dinner anytime, Chris was made all the more perfect for Janelle in that he would never, ever physically have contact with her. Barbara could daydream all she wanted about Janelle marrying this dreamy guy because he wasn't going to actually do it. Janelle was safe. Janelle was less concerned about how dreamy Chris was because, after all, she knew he wasn't real. So in late 2010, Janelle started secretly seeing Jamie Curd, a local guy who also happened to be her old crush Bill's cousin. In Janelle's mind, this was probably supposed to make Bill jealous, but Bill didn't even notice. However, Janelle also genuinely liked Jamie. Unfortunately, her parents didn't. The only way Jamie could see Janelle in semi-private was to fix the Potter computer. Luckily, Barbara could barely work the thing, so she often asked Jamie to take a look at it. Then, Jamie and Janelle could hang out in the computer room while Jamie turned the desktop off and back on to fix Barbara's non-problem. Despite Jamie's technical help, Barbara especially disliked him. She described him in an email to Chris as that jerk Jamie Curd. He takes advantage of us and is dirty, muddy, and walks in the house any old time. He smells too. She added, apropos of nothing, Janelle does not want to go out with Bill either. She is such a good person. 
By the 2011 holidays, though, Jamie seemed to have proved himself to the Potters, spending both Thanksgiving and Christmas with them that year. Being in the Potter parents' good graces, though, didn't mean he was allowed to date their daughter. And so he and Janelle kept their relationship on the DL. At first, Jamie could only call Janelle on the Potter's landline, Janelle not having a cell phone. But of course, you can't really have sexy talk on your parents' landline, so Jamie got Janelle a cell phone. Unfortunately, Barbara found it a few weeks later and took it away. There were, of course, no dates with Jamie because of Janelle's parents' protectiveness, so he had no way to talk to her besides the landline or fixing the family computer, aside from email. But they made email work for a while. Janelle took a ton of nude pictures and emailed them to Jamie, who seemed to like them quite a bit. When his computer was searched, investigators would find the pictures saved under file names such as First Tit Shot, Squirt Good, Wide Open, and in all caps, A HOLE. Janelle quickly told Jamie that she loved him and soon was talking about marriage. As much as I think Janelle truly cared for Jamie, I also think she was desperate to get out from under her parents' thumb. And so when Jamie asked Janelle to elope, she was all for it. And that's how at 4.30 one morning in late 2010, Barbara answered a phone call from the local police, telling her that they had found her daughter wandering the streets with a packed suitcase, dirty and exhausted. They asked her to come pick Janelle up at the station. But Barbara was so determined that Janelle could do no wrong that she thought they had said the wrong daughter's name. At 6 a.m., Barbara's mother's phone rang a few miles away. Barbara asked her mom where Christy was. The Potter's older daughter, Christy, had moved into her grandmother's house to take care of her after Christy's marriage had ended. Barbara's mother said that Christy was asleep in her room. Barbara asked her to prove it, and a minute later, Christy took the phone. Barbara asked how Christy was with her grandmother when the police had told Barbara that her daughter was waiting at the station. Christy reminded Barbara that she did have another daughter, but Barbara said that there was no way it was Janelle. But when Barbara checked Janelle's room at Christie's suggestion and found it empty, she rang the police station, where they told her yet again that it was Janelle they had found. She had been stood up by Jamie. By the time Barbara got to the police station, Janelle had concocted a story for her mother. Her blood sugar must have dropped because she didn't remember leaving the house. She didn't remember a thing until she found herself in the police station. Barbara, credulous woman that she was, didn't think to ask how someone experiencing a diabetic emergency had had the presence of mind to not only pack a bag, but remember to put her medication in it. Christine knew that this event really freaked her parents out. She said it was the first time they didn't have complete control over Janelle. According to Jamie, he hadn't technically stood Janelle up because he hadn't thought she was serious about eloping. The night they were supposed to run away was his birthday, so Jamie was out drinking with his friends. Perhaps if Barbara hadn't taken Janelle's cell phone, Janelle could have gotten a hold of Jamie and figured out what was going on. But without it, Janelle was living in ye oldy pre-cell phone days where you just had to wonder if the person you were meeting was late, standing you up or dead. You never knew, unless they showed up either where you were or possibly in the obituary section. Those seem like dark days, my friends. After standing Janelle up, Jamie received a note from her saying she didn't love him anymore. A few days later, though, she took it back. After all, Jamie was her only hope of getting away from her parents. Soon, Jamie got Janelle another cell phone by hiding it in some bushes for her to pick up. They talked and texted for hours every day, which took Janelle away from the computer a little bit. Just like allowing Janelle to get a job might have kept her future crime from happening, letting her openly date and perhaps marry Jamie could have prevented it as well. But that would never happen, and so Janelle still sought fulfillment online. But in early and mid-2011, the internet was not a happy place for Janelle. First, Eugene Campbell, the town's 911 director, unfriended Janelle on Facebook. She was so upset that the Potter parents called Sheriff Reese to complain. 
When Reese asked them why the hell they thought he would care, the Potters said that Janelle was beside herself and they thought the sheriff should know. In the following months, Billie Jean and Tara also unfriended Janelle. Tara said she was tired of Janelle's victim complex. Anytime Janelle saw that Tara was on Facebook, she'd message Tara about how the girls in town were being mean to her. When Janelle heard Tara's reasoning for the unfriending, she didn't tell her parents. Instead, she launched a campaign of hate and harassment toward the woman, in person, online, and over the phone. She'd call Tara over and over and over, never speaking to her, just blowing up her phone. There was also an incident where Billie Jean was pumping gas and Barbara and Janelle pulled up next to her and started screaming abuse at her from the open car window. Several people witnessed this happening and said that once Barbara drove away, Billie burst into tears. Billie Jean just tried to avoid Janelle, but Tara was tired of Janelle's constant harassment. She filed for an order of protection, but was denied. Later that year, Lindsay too became a target of Janelle's phone calls and filed for a restraining order. Her request was also denied for lack of evidence. Before we go any further, I want to clarify the ages of these people. I've known this case well for many years, but every time I read or hear about this drama around Janelle, I picture people in their 20s at the oldest. But nearly every single person involved in all this fighting was in their late 20s to early 30s. The only exceptions were Barbara, who was in her 60s, and Billie Jean, who was in fact in her early 20s. When I picture Jamie sneaking Janelle a phone so they can text in secret, I see a skinny, pimply teenager. But actually, Jamie was a balding 38-year-old with a bushy mustache. Janelle didn't only focus her cyberbullying on Billie Jean and her friends, though. Janelle also bullied her mother online. She did it under one of her pseudonyms, so Barbara never suspected, but Janelle would post paragraphs on topics tearing into her mother. Then, she'd tell Barbara that those mean girls from town were writing nasty things about her online. Barbara also suspected some distant relatives from Pennsylvania that she had beef with. But like Janelle, Barbara had beef with a lot of people. As daughter Christy would say later in an interview, Barbara and Janelle have always been victims. Barbara would make friends around town, but the smallest issue or perceived slight would convince Barbara that the person was not only hateful, but evil. She was extremely paranoid, a trait she had passed down to her younger daughter. If someone drove past the Potter residence more than once within an hour, Barbara was convinced that she was being stalked. Anyone who had a disagreement with Barbara or Janelle didn't just have a different point of view, that person obviously wanted them dead. And both of them believed that if they were ever rejected, it was because they were too pretty and the rejector was jealous. In fact, Barbara hadn't been able to find a church in town because, according to her, she was so much prettier than all the local women, they wouldn't allow her to join. Barbara wrote about the cyberbullying to Jamie in November of 2011. This is all getting to me. Grr. I wish they'd just break in and I could have the pleasure of shooting them. The emails from Chris didn't help Barbara's perception. He would tell her about all the people who would say bad things about her to him, because they didn't know he was in the CIA. In January of 2011, Chris wrote to Barbara, Christy is the one you need to look out for. She is after you all a lot. And after what I saw in the courtroom, she wants you dead and out of the picture. His comment about the courtroom was from a hearing in which Christy sought a protective order against her mother because Barbara tried to get her arrested for living in Tennessee with Pennsylvania tags on her car, then tried to get Christy to hit her. Chris added, apropos of nothing, Christy has asked guys for sex and blowjobs for money and they say no. They say either they are married or they don't want to. Barbara responded to his initial comments, Wow, I never knew how much I was hated or how much I am in danger at all. Besides telling Barbara all the hot goss around town, Chris also talked about how much he liked killing. And he liked killing a lot. In that email about Christy, Chris wrote, 
Christy needs to learn that you can't get up in a cop's face. I can kill her at any time, and your family in PA. I have each one of them in my sights. He added, I hope God understands my job and I'm still believing in him. Chris, just like Buddy, used the excuse that he killed just because the CIA asked him to. But Chris was bloodthirsty. He wrote to Barbara, For the CIA, I just kill, and I enjoy that a lot. I get to shoot all the bad guys. About Billie Jean, he said, Nothing scares this girl, so I guess I just need to kill and shoot her four times in the fucking head. And a few other times. Fuck them, I hope they die, 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 and that baby too. Remember, this is Janelle writing this as Chris. But Barbara didn't seem put off by Chris's homicidal tendencies. In fact, once when Chris mentioned shooting both Christy and Barbara's mother, Barbara responded, You are welcome to shoot any of them, but let Christy's body be found. We have life insurance on her, so may as well collect it. Jesus. As Janelle got madder and madder at Billie Jean and her friends, her Matt Potter persona was getting more vicious online. Quote, I hope that baby gets taken away from Billie Jean. Why don't you die, bitch? Die, 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 bitch, fucking woof, woof, dog face, bitch. Your mom is really fat, and one day you will be too, HIV whore. That is a lot of hate to hold against someone who is just in a relationship with an old crush of yours. Janelle's hate grew the more pregnant Billie Jean was with Bill's child, and the hate reached its peak once Tyler was born. Janelle told her parents that the stress of all the cyberbullying toward herself was making her so upset that she might have a heart attack and die. Barbara relayed these concerns to Chris and begged him to hurry up and get Buddy's CIA badge renewed and delivered. Yes, Chris had promised to get him this badge. That way, next time those girls were mean to Janelle, Buddy could just shoot them. Legally. But Chris kept putting her off, telling her about clerical errors and inept bosses. But he assured Barbara he'd seen the badge and it looked just like Chris's own CIA license to kill. Barbara was relieved and wrote back, I'm glad you and we are Christians, something no one can take away from us. Chris was also emailing and texting Jamie at this time. Shockingly, their conversations were always centered around Janelle, and Jamie didn't seem to realize how weird it was that Chris knew all the private stuff that went on in Jamie and Janelle's relationship. For example, on a day where Janelle and Jamie had had an argument, the second Jamie left the Potter's house, Chris began to text him, imploring him to apologize to Janelle. Oh, have I mentioned that Chris texted Jamie from Janelle's phone, as well as wrote to him from her email address? Later, when Jamie was asked how he knew whether it was Janelle or Chris texting him, he said that Chris's messages always began with, Hey dude, or Hey man. Chris would also give Jamie advice on how to woo Janelle. In late October 2011, Chris told Jamie to take Janelle out that Saturday and then take her back to Jamie's place. Make sure you have candles and make sure you have a card and make the bed really pretty and just love on her. Chris also let Jamie know how upset he was at the local women's treatment of Janelle. He wrote in October 2011, What they are doing is fucking wrong and hurting her. Just because she is so sweet and very pretty, prettier than them, they need to get over it. But from what I know, something will happen to them in time. I wish I could kill them now, but I really can't. Jamie replied, Jen means the world to me and it hurts me so much that she cries. Chris wrote, They can't stand that Janelle is so pretty and so truthful and just a great person. Lindsay is no good for nothing and she needs to put a bag over her head and breathe hard, LMAO. Ew, her fucking ugly face and neck. Saw her at the store today. Icky. She wears short dresses. Janelle really started fanning the flames in late 2011. She constantly told her parents that she was being picked on online, and when Barbara noticed that Janelle's own Facebook statuses contained some pretty nasty vitriol against Billie Jean, Janelle told her that she hadn't written it. Either Chris had written it or one of the women had hacked into her profile. She would never talk like that. Barbara quickly emailed Chris. 
From now on, when you write on Janelle's Facebook, on wall, or an email to any of us or whoever, just sign it your brother, son, or anything that makes it clear that you are writing, not Janelle. She is accused of saying Bill is a bad father, Billy is a bad mother, and awful things about the baby. Janelle does not talk about them at all, and you know that. It's you, or whoever writes comments back on her wall. Chris said that he was sure it was one of the women hacking in. Probably Lindsay. Ugly-ass hooker fucker face is just a brat, he wrote to Barbara. She is ugly, and no one would really want to wake up and say you're so pretty. They laugh at her, I bet, and say why did I do that, LMAO. I haven't mentioned Buddy in a while. He was around for all of this, but he couldn't use a computer, so Chris never bothered to email him about all the things happening around town or updates on his CIA badge. Instead, Barbara would print out Chris's emails for Buddy to read. Buddy was furious at how his daughter was being treated by the local women, and the more he heard, the more he hated them. His need to take these women out for good was rising. And don't forget, Buddy generally had a gun on each hip, so it was taking some self-control for him to not just shoot them. He was waiting for the word from the CIA, through Chris, that he could open fire. And finally, in January of 2012, he got it. Now that he had the go-ahead, Buddy started to plan. He asked Jamie if he'd be willing to help him with something. Eager to ingratiate himself even more to the Potters, Jamie said yes. He didn't know what he was agreeing to, but Barbara was finally treating him like a son, and he also wanted to help protect Janelle however he could. Barbara had written to Chris about how ready Buddy was to take action. If Bill thinks there is enough room in this town for Jamie and our family, they are going to see who is going to be leaving. We don't call 911 anymore. We are ready to take care of this ourselves. Most of January went by with no word, and Jamie basically forgot about Buddy's request. But finally, on January 30th, Buddy informed Jamie that today was the day. Jamie left the Potter house after working on their computer at midnight as the 30th turned into the 31st. He got a call from Janelle a few hours later. Daddy wants you to help do something. Don't take your cell phone. The two texted back and forth for a couple hours, and at 4.30 a.m., Jamie called Buddy and confirmed their plans. Soon after, Jamie arrived at the Potters to pick up Buddy. Jamie still wasn't sure exactly what was going on. He just followed Buddy's instructions to drive to Bill Payne's house. In the Payne residence, around 5 a.m., Bill Sr. was getting ready to leave for work. As he left, he said goodbye to Billie Jean, who was up preparing a bottle for baby Tyler. On the road outside, still in the truck, Buddy handed Jamie one of his guns, keeping the other for himself. Jamie said, I can't kill nobody, and Buddy told him, you won't have to. He instructed Jamie to stay in the truck while he went into the house and be ready to make a quick getaway once Buddy got back in. At 10 a.m. on the 31st, the Payne's friends, Roy and Linda Stephen, stopped by the house to pick up Roy's mail. No one came to the door when they knocked, so Roy went inside. What they found was unbelievable. Bill's body was lying face up on the couple's bed. He was wearing only the shorts he'd slept in. He had a single gunshot under his left eye and a slash across his throat. Billie Jean's body was on the floor in Tyler's room. She was wearing a t-shirt and cartoon Grinch pajama bottoms, and there was a bullet hole above her right ear. When Roy found her, she was still holding baby Tyler, who was miraculously alive. He had stopped crying hours ago. On the evening of the murders, Janelle texted Jamie, her first text to him all day. Baby, are you okay? Like Dad said, come over and talk, okay? I love you so much, baby. Dad said you were sick, so I left you alone. Indeed, Jamie had thrown up after Buddy told him what he'd done. 
Given the famous war between Janelle and her alleged enemies, it didn't take long for the police to pay a visit to the Potters to ask them some questions. When they knocked on the door just a day after the murders, Buddy answered and said, I figured you'd be around. Everyone always points the finger at us. Once the police were sitting down with all of the Potters, they let them know what had happened at the Paines. They asked Janelle if she knew anything about it. Janelle started stammering. I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sorry it happened, but all I can tell you is they've been harassing the living crap out of me. Buddy cut in and said Janelle couldn't harm anyone even if she wanted to, but Janelle immediately ruined the moment by saying that actually she could kill someone if they were going to rape her. Which, fair enough, but maybe not the time to admit that, Janelle. Janelle told the officers that she'd never written anything mean about anyone on the internet. All I ever posted was please leave me alone. They were on my account, they hacked in, and I just said please please leave me alone. The police decided to take Buddy down to the station for further questioning while other officers worked on getting a search warrant for the house. Once the warrant was procured, S Sheriff Woodward went back to the Potters. As he started his search, he noticed Barbara grab some papers off of the coffee table and start ripping them up. He asked to see them. They were printed pictures of Billie Jean and Lindsay, hanging out at the beach in bikinis. Below Billie Jean's photo, someone had written, Billy Whore. Below Lindsay's, it read, Pan Face. Woodward also found, in the back of Buddy's truck, two huge garbage bags full of shredded paper. Once they were brought back to the station and meticulously pieced together strip by strip, the papers were revealed to be all the emails Barbara had printed out for Buddy to read. Down at the station, it hadn't taken long for Buddy to fess up. He told the officers that he had to do what he had done. He said, when you hear people plotting to take your daughter and get her sick in a field and murder her and they want to rape her because she's a virgin and just so much shit, you have no choice. Especially when someone's put a $3,000 bounty on her head on my wife and me. Yeah, I don't know either. When the police told Buddy he was under arrest, Buddy reached for his guns, but thankfully didn't get a hold on them. He called Barbara from the station and told her he'd confessed. Barbara told him that he didn't know what he was talking about. He'd been home with her all night. She had tried to convince Sheriff Woodward that the murders were related to Bill's history of drug dealing, but that was disproven by the fact that the Paines had had their prescription medication out in plain sight and they hadn't been touched. It wasn't long after Buddy's arrest that Jamie was arrested too. He was very cooperative with the police and confessed fairly quickly. The only point he argued was that while yes, he had held a gun, he hadn't used it. Having a gun, he said, and being able to use it are two very different things. Nevertheless, he had been part of the murder and was sent to jail. As Jamie was led out of the interview room, he asked, Is the CIA here? At the time, the officers had no idea where Jamie would have gotten the idea that the CIA was anywhere near Mountain City, Tennessee. But of course, they'd soon find out. Jamie would wait for over two years to get a trial. When he spoke to Barbara on the phone shortly after his arrest, Barbara told him, We've been praying our hearts out. Janelle even saw an angel in the computer room. Despite Buddy and Jamie being arrested, Janelle and Barbara didn't seem to fear being arrested themselves. Still, Janelle was concerned about what might come out in interviews. She texted an old friend, Melanie Clayton, on February 7th, 2012. Hey girl, Jamie and my daddy are in jail. The cops left an hour ago, but they took the computer. I am so upset. Wanted you to know. Melanie texted back, If your dad is in the CIA, why is he in jail? Janelle replied, FBI is over, CIA. They got blamed and they were both home and the cops are being mean. A few hours later, Janelle asked Melanie, Do you think Jamie still loves me? She'd ask her friend that question over and over. Dennis Brooks, the prosecutor in the Potter's trials, pointed out that the reason Janelle was asking if Jamie still loved her, but not whether her father did, is because she knew that while Buddy would never give her up to the police, Jamie might. 
Janelle's sister, Christy, while she didn't disbelieve that her father had pulled the trigger at the pain house, could not believe that he had gotten to that point on his own. She told the prosecutor when he was looking into the case that her dad had to have been manipulated to that action. She knew at least Janelle and possibly her mother were involved. At the time of the murder, Christy wasn't speaking to her immediate family, but funnily enough, she happened to be present when her mother was arrested. In August 2013, Janelle was in the hospital. This wasn't unusual. To keep her parents convinced of her fragility, Janelle, well aware of how to manage her diabetes, would eat or drink something that would land her in the local ER. Barbara was visiting Janelle in her hospital room when she was arrested, and as she was let out, Christy happened to be there, on duty as a paramedic. This, of course, only served to convince Barbara that Christy was still out to get her. Janelle was arrested as soon as she was discharged from the hospital, and each woman's respective bail was set very high. Marvin Buddy Potter's trial began on October 7, 2013. All of the local news stations attended the trial. Buddy's trial wasn't terribly remarkable, and he seemed to agree. He was emotionless throughout. He didn't even look hurt when, on the stand, his wife said that he hadn't been in his right mind when he had confessed because he didn't have his oxygen. When asked if Buddy required it, Barbara replied, He's weak and not the man I married. Ouch. Buddy was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to two life terms. Throughout all of his interviews and his year or so in jail before his trial, Jamie denied having a relationship with Janelle. Janelle did the same. But when Jamie's car was searched, they found love letters and notes from Janelle, and they found some of those saucy pics on his computer. After so long in prison, Jamie did eventually turn on Janelle and accepted a deal from the prosecutor for testifying in the women's trials. 25 years in prison for facilitation of first-degree murder. Janelle and Barbara were tried together. Prosecutor Dennis Brooks' opening statement was two hours long. He began by saying, This is a story of a manufactured conflict born in the mind of a very bored, lonely, 30-year-old woman. Brooks was very annoyed because Barbara arrived in court each day pushed in a wheelchair, despite security footage from the jail showing her shooting hoops on the basketball court on her own two feet. My favorite part about the Potter women's trial is that Brooks hired a forensic linguist, Dr. Robert Leonard, who looked at not only handwritten samples from Janelle and Barbara, but also every single email and text ever sent by either of them during the three or so years before, during, and after the crime. All in all, it was thousands of emails, hundreds of text messages, and almost eight megabytes of Facebook data. Before handing over the materials to Dr. Leonard, Brooks had Janelle go through most of the Facebook posts from her account that were in the file and agree that she'd written them. She did, and as Dr. Leonard looked at everything, he was able to pinpoint the two women's distinctive writing styles. While neither of them were great with spelling, Barbara had much better grammar than her daughter. And though Barbara's emails could drag on for pages, they weren't full run-on sentences like Janelle's. The biggest reason Brooks had hired Dr. Leonard was to counter Janelle's lawyer, Cameron Hyder's argument that Janelle's account had indeed been hacked and none of the vitriol spewed on her social media was actually written by her. But Leonard's examination showed that Janelle's signature writing style was present in posts written on her Facebook, the emails and texts from Chris, and the topics posts by Matt Potter, Dan White, Kelly, and a handful of other personas. Barbara had only written her own emails. Hyder called Christy to the stand and asked her about life with her sister. He asked, Your sister is borderline retarded, correct? Considering this trial happened in 2015, I'm surprised that word was used, but perhaps it's the correct legal term? In any case, Christy wasn't happy with its use either. She said, I have my opinion about Janelle's intellectual ability. She's a slow learner, her cognitive formulation is odd, but she is not as bad as you're making it sound. 
she described how manipulative Janelle was of their parents. Hyder protested that Janelle possessed the intellect of a fourth grader. When Prosecutor Brooks called Dr. Eric Engum, a neuropsychologist, to testify, he asked if fourth graders have the ability to be manipulative. Dr. Engum said nine-year-olds manipulate their parents all the time. But the most fascinating part of the case was when Brooks called Chris to the stand. Because yes, there was a Chris. This Chris, though, was not the one who had written the emails. That was Janelle, most definitely. But Chris, the CIA agent, had been inspired by a real Chris from Janelle's life. Much like the CIA agent Janelle had described to her family and Jamie, Chris to Jaden had indeed gone to high school with her. He was tall, dark, and handsome. His dad was a police chief in Delaware, and Chris had followed in his footsteps to become a police officer. Just the kind of person Janelle idolized. When he testified, Janelle was laser-focused on him. Chris was happily married, but he did agree that he had gone to school with Janelle. They didn't have a ton of contact, moving in different circles, and he had never saved her from a bully named, Amer named Amanda or driven her to school. But yes, he had known Janelle. Krista Jaden had been the one in the picture Janelle had shown people in Mountain City of her Chris. And because no one in Mountain City knew Chris, this was further proof that Janelle had been behind the fake Chris persona. And what about Barbara's internet activity? Well, of course, there were her emails to Chris and Jamie describing how she wanted Bill and Billie Jean to be taken care of. But the final nail in the coffin was an article she had sent to herself on January 16th, 2012, 15 days before the murder. An article written by Reverend Billy Graham titled, Can God Forgive a Murderer? At the end of the women's trial, Prosecutor Brooks asked the jury to close their eyes and imagine the murders of Bill Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth happening without the influence of Janelle and Barbara Potter. If you can't imagine that, he said, then you know in your heart what the verdict must be. Janelle and Barbara were both found guilty of first-degree murder. While Janelle immediately filed for an appeal, it was denied. Janelle and Barbara are serving two consecutive life sentences each and are eligible for parole in 2072. Buddy is serving concurrently and will not be eligible for parole until 2132. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash HookedThePod where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.